Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let us worship the Lord our God. are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. God of wonder and glory, the world around us is awesome. You created it. You continue to hold it together even as we threaten to tear it apart. God of justice and righteousness, to you we look for the truth. You are the ultimate judge. Your wisdom cuts through the lies. 
God of grace and mercy, the love you have shown us in Jesus is more than we deserve. Your arms are open wide like a waiting parent for the prodigal child, ready to welcome and restore. And so we praise you and give you thanks in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of you gathered here in this sanctuary, and of course everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather together in the house of the Lord. Excuse me. <coughs> because it is God's house in which we are gathered, there are no words of welcome that are not completely unequivocal. God welcomes all, and so do we. We'd be delighted if everyone would join for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is simply out this door to my right and down a short ramp. There you will find our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to speak one-on-one -on -one with each other. I have a number of announcements I'd like to highlight for your particular attention this week. The first is to call to attention our ongoing Linton donation drive. You have the opportunity during the offering today to bring items to benefit three of our mission partners. You may also fill out an online form and donate those directly, and they'll be sent directly here to the church if you prefer to do that. But as I have been saying each week, I encourage you to make this a Lenten discipline and to make it your practice not to come to God's house empty-handed during Lent. Our band of boomers are off for what promises to be a fascinating walking tour today at 2 o'clock, but I believe they're going to leave from here and go and have lunch uh, elsewhere. Uh, I am unclear whether folks can join now to that tour if they can. So if you have questions about that, Shelley and Rick Unger are up here in the corner, and they can answer any questions about that walking tour with the band of boomers. It looks like a fabulous opportunity. Another fabulous opportunity will be next Sunday afternoon, April 3rd at 4 p.m. We have a wonderful offering of an organ concert with the highly acclaimed Douglas Cleveland, which will also include Pamela Decker's monumental Seven Last Words and Triumph of Christ. And as a special added bonus to that, Pamela Decker herself will be present and will be walking us through the musical elements of the Seven Last Words of Christ next Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock, here in the sanctuary. You will not want to miss that. Before we move to the confession of sin, I call on the Reverend Cindy Jarvis with our minute for mission. Every Saturday, I receive an email with the number of souls shot and killed in Philadelphia over the last seven days. Nine confirmed and another three unconfirmed this week, 115 so far this year. It is a number. Like the number of lives lost in the United States by homicide, murder, or unintentional shootings since January 1st, 4,286. Like the number of suicides committed by a gun as of yesterday, 5,610. Numbers numb our minds. What in the world might have the power to open our eyes and hearts to the countless souls shot, souls beloved by God, who once were clothed in flesh and blood, as we are. The answer to that question for Laura Madeline, an artist and member of the Presbyterian Church of Chestnut Hill, was the transformative power of art. In 2016, Laura dreamed of pairing fine artists with loved ones of victims of gun violence to create portraits that somehow brought the loved one to life again. She imagined a month-long exhibition Six years later, Soul Shot has worked with over 100 artists and memorialized over 150 souls. Numbers, again. But Soul Shot is not about numbers. It is about making gun violence personal. It is about creating a place of empathy in our lives where true change can take root. As I hope you will see next Saturday and Sunday and throughout the month of April, the unique virtue of this project 
is its invitational rather than confrontational approach to gun violence in our nation and in our neighborhoods. If I were to put a theological twist on this, I would say the portraits are not only invitational, they are also incarnational. Incarnational. As God assumed our flesh and blood to end the distance we keep from God and so from the love for which we were made. These portraits recreate, reincarnate the flesh and blood lives of souls shot to end the distance we keep from sons and daughters just like ours, from mothers and fathers just like ours, from sisters and brothers just like ours, from grieving family members just like ours who will be our guests in Buttonwood Hall. Soul Shot is not about numbers. It's about making gun violence personal. It's about creating a space of empathy in our lives where true change can take root. The opening reception is next Saturday, April 2nd, between 4 and 6 p.m. here in Buttonwood. An artist, a family member, and State Representative Art Haywood will speak at 5 p.m. An intrepid committee of First Church First Church members may need a few more volunteers, one on Friday to help Laura hang the portraits, and others to welcome visitors on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays between 11 and 3 through April 28th. Diane Rogers, right over there, who might just be a little more confrontational than invitational in coffee hour, will be glad to sign you up. I hope to see you next Saturday at 4 o'clock. Even the most carefully lived lives stand in need of repair. We distance ourselves from those we were created to love, and we need God's healing and forgiveness. God, who created us out of the ever-flowing, of overflowing of God's love, stands more ready to forgive than we are ready to confess. With such assurance, one need never fear confession. Let us confess our sin first together and then in silence, as we make more candid our confession before our God, who has made us, who knows us, and who loves us. Eternal God, we know that we are your good creation, made in your image and called to reflect your goodness. In Jesus Christ, you redeemed our brokenness and brought us into right relationship with you. And yet, despite our best efforts, and sometimes due to our worst efforts, we have sinned. Our sin leaves us feeling alienated and distant from what we love. Forgive us, we pray. Bring us back to wholeness, that we might witness to joy. For the sake of our crucified and risen Lord, Jesus Christ.
If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to God's self through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the book of Joshua, in the fifth chapter, starting at the ninth verse. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt, and so that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, They kept the Passover in the evening on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna seized on that day, they ate the produce of the land, and the Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. Our second reading comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, in the fifth chapter, starting at the 16th verse. 
From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making God's appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our gospel lesson is taken from the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel narrative. First three verses, and then beginning at the second half of verse 11 and continuing through the 32nd, continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property among them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to work with his pigs. And he would gladly have filled himself with the pods the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? And here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned before heaven, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of the hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen! For all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then his father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, 
because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I've got some good news for you, and I also have some bad news, so I think we should just go ahead and get the bad news out of the way so that we can really sit back and savor the good news and enjoy it. Let's start with a story, and I think when I'm done with it, you'll have a pretty good idea what uh, the bad news is. The late Fred Craddock writes, I've told some of my friends what a shocking thing it is to discover that I had not really heard the story of the prodigal son when I preached those sermons about him coming home from the far country and about them bringing the ring and the robe and killing the fatted calf. Then they bring the musicians and there's a party and there's music and dancing and all of that. I preached that sermon as though this was a natural, easy, right thing to do. I'd never... thought about that party until a family up the street divorced and left three or four youngsters, girls, one of them attractive, prematurely mature, and about 14 years old. She was truant at school, into marijuana, always in trouble, always up before the judge, chasing and hanging on the tail end of every motorcycle that went roaring through our neighborhood. She finally was so truant and so involved in misdemeanors that the judge said, you're going to reform school in southern Oklahoma. And she was sent away to a detention home for girls. About the fourth or fifth month that she was living there, she gave birth to the child she was carrying. She was 15 at the time. Word came back to the neighborhood some months afterward that she was coming home. Will she have the baby with her? Is she really coming home back to our neighborhood? The day we heard she was to come home, all of us had to mow our grass. We were out in our yards mowing our grass and watching that house. She didn't show, nobody came, and we kept watching the house and mowing our grass. I was down to about one blade at a time, you know, watching the house when a car pulled up into the driveway and out steps. It's Kathy, she has the baby. She brought home the baby, and people in the house ran out and grabbed her and took her turns holding that baby, and they were laughing, and they were joking, and then they went in. Another car pulled in, then another. They started parking in the street. Fred says, you couldn't have gotten a Christian car down that street, just cars on every side, and there they were gathering, you know. Suddenly, I got disturbed and went into my house. It suddenly struck me. What if one of them saw me down in the yard and said, Hey, Fred, she's home and she has the baby. We're giving a party and we'd like for you and Nettie to come. Well, I've got papers to grade and all. Would I have gone? If you lived next door to the prodigal son's father, would you have gone over to the party? It's easier to preach on that than to go to the party. You are invited to a party, 
and there are going to be all kinds of unsavory people there. And that's not the bad news. This is. God is the one throwing the party. Do you see why that's bad news? Now, let me tell you another story. When my brother finished medical school, his classmates took a trip, and they invited me to go along with them because I knew all of them so well. And there was this one fellow. He, in the end, he was really sort of a decent sort, I suppose. But he was what I like to call a pick-and-choose fundamentalist. He knew I was a minister, and we proceeded to annoy each other all week long. We were at dinner one night when we came around to the story of the flood from Genesis, because that's good dinner conversation, and he was going on and on and on about what he thought it meant. And at this stage of my life, because of a postgraduate fellowship that I had, I was moving in what I thought was some pretty illustrious company, and I was fairly full of myself. I mean, a few weeks before this trip, I had had dinner with a United States senator at the home of the CEO of Eli Lilly. I was on a first-name basis with the head of the International Olympic Committee and the World UN Food Program. And to be clear, I didn't personally do any of those things, but I knew the people who did, and in my mind, that made me kind of a big deal. So remember a few weeks ago when I told you that Karl Barth said that the Noahic Covenant, that moment when God promised Noah and all of humankind that God would never, ever, ever again destroy what God had created, represented the moment in which God decided irrevocably to be for humankind, in favor of humankind, and never, ever against humankind. Well, I quoted that. He was not amused because he had some judgment he had yet to dispense. So he replied with his newly minted M.D., well, I didn't go to seminary, but I have always rankled at those who believe that expertise in one field makes them automatically experts in another. So that was a declaration of war. He was implying that I didn't know what I was talking about, and I was just about to unload three years of seminary training on him, and a bit of wounded professional pride at the same time, when underneath the table my brother's claws dug into my knee as he deftly changed the topic. God's throwing a party, and there's a better-than-average chance I'm going to be seated yet again next to that sanctimonious jerk. Does it look like bad news yet? God's throwing a party, and there's a strong possibility there could be some folks there that you don't like, who don't respect, maybe don't like, don't respect you. Are you going to go? Will you go to a party that God is throwing where there are going to be folks that have hurt your feelings, insulted your pride, who have sought to chip away at the things that are most important to you, perhaps? Are you going to go? God is throwing a party, and you are invited. It's sort of easy to sit back and take assessment of this situation, the invitation and all of that, and decide that God has stuck us in an impossible situation. We are the church, after all. We are supposed to represent what God is about, meaning, of course, God's law, justice, Morality, at least that's probably what the folks out there think we're talking about in here. If one of us got caught in an adulterous affair, if one of us cheated the IRS, if one of us plagiarized a sermon, 
If one of us oversaw an accounting fraud that deprived retired folks of their life savings? Now, I don't really believe this, but when politicians and stars get away with increasingly bad behavior, sex scandals, lying and cheating, and then a scant handful of years, or in some cases a scant handful of minutes, they are right back in the public eye, expecting us to put them right back in the position they were in before, to, to go right back to things as, as though nothing ever happened, I begin to wonder if there isn't a real shortage of shame in the world. Now, I, I don't really believe that. But it sure is tempting to think about it, isn't it? I mean, the church does have to have some standards, right? I mean, we can't just let anybody roll up in here and, and be part of the body of the faithful, can we? Does it not even matter what we've done in the past? Well, God's throwing a party, and we are all invited. You might be seeing why this could be bad news for some folks. Jesus is in a conversation at this point with the Pharisees. You know by now who they are. They are the folks who handled religion. They are your ministers. They are our elders and our deacons. Too many sermons make the Pharisees out to be villains, and they just aren't. They are the ones charged with keeping decency and order. They are doing their job, and their job is clear. Jesus is talking with them, and he tells this story where some full-of-himself kid, high on who knows what, takes parents' money and squanders it. We really don't know on what. The text doesn't explicitly tell us. The older brother wants us to think that it was on prostitutes, though the story does not explicitly say so. One colleague reminded me that the Greek word actually translates as that which is beyond saving, if we take it at its literal meaning. And somehow when Jesus is done telling the story, they look like the ones who have missed the point. They are supposed to be the good guys. They did what they were told. They upheld God's law. How is it they find themselves on the outside in this story? Oh, I guess we're beginning to see now why this might be a little bit of bad news. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Are you going to the party? This story is not primarily about us, as tempting as it is to locate ourselves within it. It's really a story about God and about a God who decided to love us. About God who knows everything we've done wrong, all our hidden secrets and shameful moments, and still loves us. And I know a lot of good Christians who believe that God loves them, loves us when we're good, but secretly don't believe that God loves us when we are bad, when we have done something wrong. But that is the heart of the gospel that God loves us when we most need to be loved, in the moments when we have done something wrong. Because God wants us to come home. Now, you all know me well enough by now to know that I'm not saying that addressing sin isn't important or that sin isn't wrong. But there is more love in God than there is sin in us. That's the gospel. That and that God wants us to come home so much that God came to get us. Think for just a second. What is your image of home? Where is that place 
where you are most fully yourself? Where is it that you know that you are unconditionally loved? God is our home. Sometimes it takes a long time to get there. Sometimes it is an awfully long way home. But God will not rest until we all get there. And then there will be a party like we've never seen before. Some of us may take longer than others to get there, but God will not give up on us. One of my colleagues likes to say that this story, this 15th chapter of Luke, those first 30 verses, 32 verses, if, if you had to give someone who had never heard a word of the gospel one text to read, you could give them the 15th chapter of Luke and they would know everything they ever needed to know about God. So think about it. What does the father do when the son finally comes to himself, decides to go home? Who knows what's really going on in his head? And his father sees him far off on the horizon. What does he do? Does he wait? Nope. Does he consult his lawyer about all the money that's gone missing? Nope. Does he tell everybody, well, you know, I know he's done wrong, but he's, he's my son. How could I do anything else? That's a hard nope. He takes off running. He takes off running, and when he reaches his son, he grabs him, and he holds him, and he says over and over again, thank God you are home. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. That's the good news. Karl Barth, that theologian who nearly got me into uh, verbal fisticuffs that time, once stated that he had spent his entire career trying to make God a cheerful word again. Why do you suppose he felt he needed to make God a cheerful word again? Maybe because sometimes we have missed the point of grace. Perhaps sometimes the church has been more concerned with sin than with love. Maybe sometimes we've forgotten that God is bringing us home however long it takes. And that's good news. Any way you cut it, that's good news. Because no matter how long the way home is, God will make sure we get there because God is our home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
let us together confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As people of the new creation, let us offer ourselves and our gifts to God.
Holy God, as we continue to contemplate this season of Lent, we are mindful of the lengths to which you would go for the love of humankind. We are floating on a sea of grace greater than we can ask or imagine. As we gather in the name of Jesus Christ to pray, we are mindful that he taught us to pray for these things. We pray for this world, which you have made and loved, and where you are at work for redemption. We pray for the leaders of the world, the leaders of other nations, and our own. Your way in the world is one of wholeness and peace. The world longs for your shalom. Guide leaders to work for the common good of their own nations and the whole world. Shorten the distances between us. Compel countries with compassion. Make us whole, O Lord. And likewise, we pray for the city where we live, for those in our midst who struggle with the strains of life. We offer our prayers. For those who live with unemployment and underemployment, for those without housing or substandard housing, for those who live with addiction and mental and emotional illness, for victims of violence, particularly gun violence, for all of these, and for those unnamed yet known to you, we offer our prayers. You know the measure of grace that is needed in each life, and so we commend our prayers to your care. Finally, O Lord, we pray for ourselves. You have called each of us to live lives marked with your grace, sustained by your power, to be a blessing to the world. We all need to be inspired and sustained. And so we give you thanks for the communities of faith that have guided and nurtured us. We pray for the Church Universal, for the Presbyterian Church, and for our own congregation. May each of these be the mother of faith that our lives may proclaim the one crucified and risen. Hear our prayers as we pray the words now that your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
God is throwing a party, and we are all invited. And since this is the case, and it's going to stay the case, it would probably behoove us to make friends with the people that we're likely to be seated next to. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.